You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Uh, Thabiti Anyawibwe is an actual name of a person. He's a pastor. And he says this regarding preaching. He says the best preachers are plagiarists. Because all they do is tell people what God has said. And you know what? That's what I want to do this morning. I, I just want to tell you what God has said to his people in Ephesus and to us this morning. So if you have a Bible, Revelation chapter 2 is where we'll be. If you don't have one, uh, there'll be a Bible somewhere under a seat nearby. And we'll have it on the screen for you as well. You know, uh, when you think about Revelation, uh, people have said that other than Leviticus, Revelation is the least preached book in the church today. So uh, you're welcome. Uh, Revelation is essentially the ending to God's great story, or rather the beginning of the end, if you will. The, the details throughout this entire book are hotly debated. Probably, the reason it's probably so less preached is due to the fact that there's so much debate within this book. But through all the details, the main idea is clear and simple. God wins. And this book tells us essentially four things about God. God destroys evil, God rescues believers, God transforms creation, and God lives among his people forever. We see in chapter 1 that the author of this book is John. John is an apostle of Christ. He was one of the 12 disciples. The son of Zebedee, the brother of James, Jesus referred to him as the beloved disciple. He was one of the three in the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. So he was close with Jesus. He also authored the fourth gospel in the New Testament, the gospel according to John. And he wrote this letter, uh, exiled at the end of the first century on the island known as Patmos. True story about Patmos. About uh, eight and a half, nine years ago, I met my bride-to-be. And I'll never forget, after several months of dating, things were getting serious. It was time to meet the family. And uh, not only did I want to be liked and loved by mom and dad but I really wanted her younger brothers and sisters to love me, right? So I had to find common ground. Well, her younger brother at the time uh, was really into Pokemon, okay? Pokemon, uh, just fake cartoon monsters. It's a card game. I don't get it. I never will. But uh, he was into it. And so naturally, I was into it when I met him. And so um, he was just curious about it. And he said, man, how cool would it be if they were real? Not thinking, I went on to tell my, my, my future brother-in-law, Pokemon actually exist. They are real. And they actually live in exile on the island of Patmos. <laughs> I will never forget uh, that week was Thanksgiving, so he didn't have school. He couldn't wait to get back to school the next week, I guess, to tell all of his friends that Pokemon were real. So the next time I saw him about nine months later, I was eager to continue our friendship over Pokemon uh, to which he wanted nothing to do with me for about three days because he said that uh, the fact that he told all of his friends at school that was pretty much committing social suicide. He didn't have friends for like a month because they told him that Pokemon do not exist. And so I was not a popular person. So in this passage, we see two things. Pokemon do not exist. The island of Patmos does. But there are some things in Revelation that are just as bizarre. You see things like beasts out of the sea. Beasts with several heads and all kinds of horns. You see locusts with the face of a human and the tail of a scorpion. You see a, a rider on a white horse, a woman clothed in the sun. 
you see some crazy things in the book of Revelation. There's all this apocalyptic imagery going on. It's easy to get lost in all of that in this book. Revelation simply answers one question for us. Who is the Lord of the universe? See, this book was written to encourage disciples because they were uh, under the uh, oppression of the Roman government. The same government who viewed the emperor as God. At the time this was written, that would be the emperor Domitian. Emperors like Nero, who burned Christians alive upside down. Um, these types of things, this persecution that was going on. So this letter was written as encouragement to believers in the first century that God is on his throne, and it's not the emperor. His name is Jesus. So it's a book of hope, a book of hope that essentially does touch on the future, but actually, more importantly, shows us how to live in the present right now in light of the future. So now that we're all well-versed on Revelation, here we go. Chapter 2. Uh, first seven verses, Valentine read those for us earlier. We're going to walk through the passage and just make several observations about this passage today. And, um, man, just ask the Lord to use that to transform us. God, I pray again this morning that the words we're about to read, knowing full well that they are your words, to one of seven churches in Asia 2,000 years ago, are very much alive and active for your church at Stonegate this morning. And I just pray that you would use them to bring about edification in the body of Christ. Encourage us in your word. I pray that it would bring about conviction that would lead to repentance. God, that you would use this word today to stir our love for you. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. Essentially, Jesus is giving a directive. This is a command to an angel. Angels have one purpose. Bring glory to God. They are in submission to God. You know, there's a weird theology that surrounds angels. Uh, we don't become angels, by the way, just so, just so we're clear on that. 1 Peter chapter 1 says that angels long to look into the things that we have with God. So I'm, I'm just fine with the relationship with God that I get now. So we, we don't become angels. Matter of fact, uh, the author of Hebrews goes into great detail in chapter 1 regarding the role of an angel in submission to God. Hebrews chapter 1 says this, that Jesus, being the radiance of God's glory, being the exact representation of his nature, Jesus being God, is essentially over the angels. It says that uh, he's become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. To which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, or I will be to him a father, and he shall be my son. Let all God's angels worship him, him being Jesus. In other words, what we see here in verse 1 that echoes the author of Hebrews is that angels are in submission to Jesus. Jesus is communicating to an angel to write the following letter to the church at Ephesus. Seven letters have been written to these churches in Asia, and the Lord essentially follows a similar pattern for each of them. He wants to build them up, he wants to encourage them, and he wants to leave them with a rebuke, if you will, a warning. And, um, and that's, that's, the, that's the pattern that follows each letter. So here in Ephesus, we see right off the bat, Jesus issues a command. Hey, angel, write this. And as you read on, the words of him 
who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. It's interesting, at the end of verse 1 here, the first thing that Jesus tells the angel to write is a description of himself. It's actually typical in that culture to um, put your uh, name at the beginning of a letter to identify who you are. These letters were read out loud to a church. Uh, put this into a modern context. If uh, we were to receive a letter from Casey Maddox, one of our church planners uh, near Kansas City, and Casey wrote the church of Stonegate a letter, Rodney, as our lead pastor, would read that letter out loud to the church, and he might begin with, at that culture, their name. Whereas in our culture, we would write the name at the end of a letter. Sincerely, Jeff. Um, so in our case, it's much like a voicemail, if you will. So in a voicemail, we, we put our name first, right? So if I'm calling Rodney, it would sound something like this. Hey, Rodney, uh, this is Jeff, just utilizing an illustration in church this morning. Hey, while I have you on the phone, I just want to apologize. The youth ministry set the building on fire again last night, but uh, thanks for understanding. Love you, buddy. So in this case, it's much like us leaving our name at the beginning of a message. There's nothing narcissistic with Jesus right here. He's not like, um, matter of fact, it's, it's actually holy. Jesus is describing himself. He says the words of him. Jesus is about himself. God is about God. God is for God. That's a good thing for us. Just for the record, he's not narcissistic. He's holy. There's a difference. Because he's holy, he's out for his glory. He wasn't created in our image. We were created in his image. The phrase, the words of him, that we see right here in the first verse is translated over 250 times in the Old Testament, and it means this, thus says the Lord, or thus saith the Lord. In other words, Jesus is assuming the role of God. He's providing for Ephesus right here and for us this morning the single most central truth in all of Christianity. Jesus is God. Last week, I, I got back from Nicaragua. Kevin Hill, who's a pastor on staff with us, one of our elders, uh, he and I got to go to Nicaragua to explore some uh, missional partnerships, just, just asking God to do some neat things for us in regards to foreign missions. Uh, that, that's Kevin right there. And on the way back, uh, we had two flights. The second one was we landed in Houston, had to come back to Dallas. But the first flight, sorry, the second flight was a short one. It was an hour and a half, but man, I was ready after the layover to get home. Want to see my girls? This plane was two seats on this aisle, two seats on this aisle, small plane. I want to sit by Kevin, have some convo, get home, sleep, right? Get a burger, get something, right? Well, uh, come to find out, we get to our seat, and I'm an aisle behind him. I'm thinking, no big deal. I'll ask someone to switch. The guy's in a window seat. He probably wants the aisle anyway. Hey, bro, you want the aisle seat? Any one, one row closer? No, nah, I'm good, bro. I want the window. Okay. 
Give me one of those flights today. Awesome. And I sit down, and within about 15 seconds, an overwhelming sense of conviction just comes over me. I wasn't even making myself aware to what God wanted to do in that moment. And what's funny is something personal, the Lord's been kind of um, just sharpening and maturing in my heart, is this idea of repentance. And so I kid you not, um, within like 15 seconds, I sit down. I think, ah, what does repentance look like? Before I can think about it, I just blurt out to the guy, first words to him. Hey, bro, so where do you stand spiritually? And I'm just like, that. for me in that moment, it was like, the Lord was saying, I, I have an opportunity for you. Probably wasn't the best transition. Who cares? Let's roll with it, right? And so um, his first response is, well, you know, I'm kind of uh, like a Roman Catholic, uh, but like way of the Buddhists. Okay, going to be an interesting flight. Guy's name was Carlos. He's from Los Angeles. Uh, he had one of those weird hats, uh, fedora, right? I can never pull that off. My head's too big. Um, Jimmy could totally pull that off. And, and, you know, it's just one of those things that, like, I, I'm big, scraggly beard. We start striking up a conversation. Interesting enough, about every 30 seconds for the next hour and a half, he drops the F-bomb. Every 30 seconds, at least, for about an hour and a half on this flight. We provided some awesome entertainment for about eight rows of people around us for, for that hour and a half. And I, I started the conversation um, trying to reason with him, if you will, because one of the first things he talked about was um, Jesus, the historical Jesus, isn't the one who we think he is. He probably didn't even exist. And I'm like, whoa, 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 bro. I get all excited, right? P32 scroll is discovered. It dates this fragment of this literary text of this manuscript to the Dead Sea Scrolls found at this date. And we have more evidential manuscript uh, proof that for the resurrection of Jesus than the life of Julius Caesar. I'm getting excited. And he just, he's not having it, right? You can't reason with them. I realized after about 20 minutes of doing this, man, I have one objective. Point this guy to Jesus any way I can. And so I'm like, hey, can I tell you a story? And I got this from Travis, by the way. Phenomenal strategy just for, for witnessing. It's just point things to Jesus. I realized after about five minutes, anything that had to do with Christians, Christianity, or a church despised this guy. But the person of Jesus was a little different. It, it kind of reminds me of... Um, uh, a quote that was once said uh, by Gandhi in regards to Christians. You know, I hate your Christians, uh, but I love your Jesus. And so I began with a story about Jesus, and he's interested. And he kind of asked a question. And I'm like, hey, I have a story for that. Can, can I tell you a story? He's like, yeah, bro. Keep in mind, F-bomb every 30 seconds. You have F-bomb guy in the window. You have Jesus guy in the aisle, okay? Pure entertainment for about an hour and a half. And uh, by the end of this thing, I probably told this guy eight stories about Jesus. We get to the, the prodigal son because his statement is um, there's a person in his life that he despises because of what he did to his sister, and he hates him. And I, and I asked him if he thought that uh, as if anybody was beyond um, the idea of grace. He said, yes, some people don't deserve it, and they'll never get it, and they shouldn't. And so I said, hey, I have one more story. Can I, can I tell it to you? He's like, yeah, sure. Prodigal son, right? But I don't do it like in like KJV format. I'm like, Yo, there's this dad, right? He got two brothers. He's like, okay, bet, all right? And I'm like, so, so there's an older brother and a younger brother. And the younger brother is like, hey, yo, dad, I want my inheritance. I want all of it. He's like, oh, for real? He gave his dad the finger. Yo, that's messed up, bro. I was like, 
I know, dude, but th- this is the story, right? And I tell the story. I'm like, he takes all this money, right? And he blows it on all. He's like, he was partying, wasn't he? I was like, yeah, he was, bro. <laughs> and, uh, and by the end of it, he's eating with the pigs. He's like, he burned it all, didn't he? I was like, yeah, dude. And then he said, it's far better for me to be a servant in my dad's house than sitting here with pigs. And he was like, oh, he's about to go home and have a tough combo with pops, wasn't he? I was like, yeah, he was, bro. He gets to the top of the hill. Guess what happens? He's like, what? I was like, there's his dad. He's like, he's ready to beat him, wasn't he? I was like, no, actually, bro, he ran to this guy. Uh, and he picked up his son. He said, I love you. Get, get the finest robe, the finest ring, put it on his finger. Go kill the fatted calf. He was like, what? I was like, get the steak. He's like, oh, okay, yeah, I got you, bro. <laughs> and so get this meal together, right? And I illustrate this story for him. And I say, at the end of the day, remember there was two brothers? He's like, oh, yeah, the older brother. I bet you he was ticked. I was like, yo, he was, dude. And you know who I am in this story? I'm the older brother. I began to describe my self-righteousness, how there's no difference. And at the end of the day, he's like, man, I guess if someone was sincere enough, I guess that, like, forgiveness could happen. But at the end of the day, the one truth this guy couldn't get through his head, he said the one thing holding him back to believing in Jesus, professing faith in Jesus, and giving his life to him, whatever that terminology looks like to him, he said is, I just don't believe Jesus is God. See, at the end of the day, stories can sound really good. They can communicate a point to the heart that really stirs some affections up. But the truth is, if you can't get over that fact, then um, nothing else matters. So in this case right here, what we see is that uh, the central truth to Christianity is that Jesus is God. Uh, Notice the twofold phrase that describes Jesus. He holds the seven stars in his right hand. He walks among the seven golden lampstands. This is some interesting imagery, right? What does it mean? Well, the end of chapter 1, if you back up a few verses, verse 20, shows us what this means. It says that the seven stars are the seven angels and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So reread that. Jesus holds the seven angels in his hand um, and he walks among the seven churches. That's interesting. I see two clauses here. In the first clause, we see an omnipotent God. The character trait is really God's sovereignty. He's all-powerful. He holds angels in the palm of his hand. The second clause moves from his omnipotence to his imminence. We see that the omnipotent, all-powerful, and holy and righteous God has made himself um, visible. The invisible God, Colossians 1, becomes visible, and he walks among the churches. This is the gospel. We see right here in this verse, this is the good news that Jesus is not dead, but rather is walking with us. He's not just sitting back in some cosmic lazy boy laughing at us and watching us destroy ourselves. That's deism. Deism would would say that there is a God. He's created all that we know and, and can see. But at the end of the day, he's just sitting up there laughing at all of us like a bunch of pawns, ready to crush us and smash us. He is not actively involved in the lives of his people. But this shows us right here that he is. Jesus is both powerful over his people and present with his people. This is the gospel. C.S. Lewis Chronicles of Narnia. Hopefully he's known for a lot more than that book. But a uh, uh, famous, famous book turned to a movie. The children first hear about Aslan, this mysterious and frightening Christ figure. He's rumored to be on the prowl. Sweet little Lucy asks Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, is he safe? Well, 
Mr. Beaver, is he safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. See, his power is frightening, but he's also safe enough to walk with us because he is good. Another observation we see in verses 2 and 3 is we see encouragement being dished out to the church. Read with me in verse 2. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. You can't bear with those who are evil, but you have tested with those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Jesus commends the church for their deeds. Specifically, two things. Their hard work and their perseverance. Their hard work includes maintaining sound doctrine against false teachers. They were quick to examine traveling messengers who had passed through with a false gospel, much like you see in Acts 17 with the Bereans, who would test everything and put it up against the word of God to see if it was true or if it was false. Here's what we see in these verses. Doctrinal purity is vital. What is doctrinal purity? It is simply knowing what you believe, why you believe it, and standing up for it. Here's why it's important to us on a practical level. Doctrinal purity is important for us because bad theology hurts people. Let me give you an example. You know which verse has been dubbed, has been associated with the millennial generation? That's, that's ours and younger. Um, Philippians 4.13. I love it. Wanna know why? It's God's word. But you see this everywhere, right? Varsity letter jackets, people tattooed on their bodies, posters at games, football eye paint, right? But here's where the theology in this verse breaks down when the understanding falsely is, well, um, if I put anything I can in my mind to it and claim Christ, I can do it. I can, I can get it. I can win it. Here's the hole in that theology. Football team A in their locker room is praying that verse. We can win the game because Jesus is with us. Well, but what if football team two is in the other locker room praying the same verse? I guess it depends on who prays harder. You see how bad theology can hurt us. But Jesus actually praises his people for keeping it a priority and defending it well. The intent of that verse is actually this. Paul, writing from a place of imprisonment under Roman oppression, says, I've experienced hunger. I've experienced what it means to be in need. I've experienced poverty. And guess what? I can face it all because at the end of the day, I am content in Jesus and nothing else matters. So with that understanding, Jesus says, I want to praise the church for doing that well. Thank you for defending the faith. If anybody in this church today sees themselves lacking in this area, I would remind you of the words from Jude at both the beginning and the end of that book. Oh, that you would contend for the faith that was once entrusted to you. In other words, just because we know the future outcome that we reign victorious doesn't mean we don't have to fight. See, John Piper puts it this way. Just because the brilliant commander-in-chief promises victory on the beaches doesn't mean the troops can throw their weapons overboard. The promise of victory assumes valor in battle. When God promises that his church will be kept from defeat, his purpose is not that we lay down our sword and go to lunch, 
but that we pick up the sword of the Spirit and look confidently to God for the strength to fight and win. Wherever the promised security of God is used to justify going AWOL, we may suspect there is a traitor in the ranks. So in this case, Jesus not only praised their hard works, but he praises them for persevering. This word endurance means to stand steadfast in the face of evil. It occurs seven times in Revelation. In the midst of exhausting work, they were also under the oppression of a Roman government who not only believed the emperor to be God, but had one of the seven ancient wonders of the world in the city at the time, the Temple of Artemis, which worshipped false goddesses. The center was a, this city was literally a center for magical practices for the occult. It was said that Ephesus was the center of paganism for the world. This explains why Jesus commends them for their faith and for defending it. And you think you would want to leave off right here. Dude, that's, that's a halftime speech, bro. Jesus dropped the mic. He laid the gauntlet. He's edifying the church. Everyone's like, yeah, fam. We got this. Thank you, Lord. I knew our labor wasn't in vain. Got that three-letter word, though. But. Jesus has one last word for them in regards to where they lack. Verse 4, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. What? How do you, you don't ever forget your first love? I'll never forget the first time I thought I was in love. Sixth grade, Hendrick Middle School. Her name was Melissa. And we had what was called a school social. We knew what it was. It was really a dance, but they couldn't call it that. And that night, it was my first ever school dance. My favorite basketball player at the time was a guy named Gary Payton. They called him the glove. They had these shoes that just looked like just awesomeness. I got new shoes, got the blue whitewashed jeans. I'm on this half of the gym with my broskies and the girls are on that side of the gym. And I'm ready because Melissa asked me if I was going to the social. I was like, yeah, girl. Of course, you know what happens, right? The whole night, dudes over here, girls over there. Everyone's scared, right? Every now and then one dude gets brave, kind of runs in the middle of the room. Like, I got farther, you know, back over here. When the night's over, they always play one last song. That slow song. Mariah Carey, you'll always be my baby. The affections start to stir. The love abounds. My fellas are getting me hyped. Bro, you're going to do this, bro. I got this, bro. Whole school watching. By whole school, I mean just 76th graders. And when a junior high boy gets that confident swag, his right leg goes dead. So it's kind of like this. As he walks over to her, trying to be all cool. And then I get there, right? You have to actually say the words. She knows what you're doing, but you have to go the distance. So what comes out of my mouth next as I cover it with my hand? Hey, yo, you, you want to dance or something? Or something. Like, I'm giving, my, I'm giving myself a way out, right? Like, I don't really want to unless you want to. You know what I'm saying? And, of course, you know what she does? What would you say? Oh, she heard me. See, girls want you to say it louder so all their friends can hear what you said, right? So they can get all excited about it, right? So I got to say it again. 
you want to dance? I get all mad about it, you know what I'm saying? She's like, yes. I didn't know what to do next. <laughs> Everything I had planned for was about walking up to her and asking the stinking question. I didn't know what to do if she actually said yes. So without thinking, I turn around and I walk off. <laughs> but I'm going to the middle of the dance floor. And I realized, oh, is she following me? Oh, no. I, do you grab her hand? Do you escort her? Do you say, after you? Like, what do you say? I'm 12, you know? I get there, I turn around, there she is. It's the moment. All my bros like, you got this, bro. All the girls like, oh, my goodness, right? I don't know what to do. No one taught me how to dance, okay? I'm white, all right? In that moment, without thinking, I put my hands around her neck. That's not her hands go there. I, I'm, I'm messing up. So I'm like, oh, too low, right? Like, find, find the middle ground, right? And then what do you do? You just you keep it right here. That's all you do. And you just start moving. And in that moment, I looked in her eyes and I thought, she will always be my baby, right? <laughs> I am in love with this 12-year-old girl. We are getting married, going to have three and a half kids, a chocolate lab, and a white picket fence. And it's going to be the best life ever. Three days later, I got dumped for a guy named Colin because he could break dance. She wasn't my first love. It was an infatuation, right? Beginning to explore those feelings. It wasn't love. In this case, Jesus' words are much more serious. The text is literally translated as this. You have abandoned your love, the first. Emphasis on the adjective first. So the love they abandoned refers to their love as it was when the church first began. Many of you in this room were here nearly seven years ago when Stonegate started. I'll never forget, summer of 2009, I had known Rodney on and off because I, I had worked some D-Nows as a counselor at his last church. We're on the roof of a homeless mission in Los Angeles about a month and a half before he plants Stonegate. And he looks at me and says, hey, what do you think about uh, the name Stonegate for a church? I kid you not, I said, bro, that's a stupid name for a church. He said, why is that? I said, bro, you're trying too hard. Stone gate, right? Like, I gave him a hard time all week. Now the church is thriving and I work for him, okay? And so, <laughs> and so I'll never forget, though. I hear stories. I wasn't here. I've only been here 20 months, 21 months. I hear stories of those that were here. You plowed faithfully. This wall was closed because you couldn't fit back there, right? He, Rodney couldn't even use this stage because he towered over the first two rows. So they had this horrible stage down here. Y'all remember the excitement, though? You remember the love you had at first for, for the church, for the Lord. It was, it was exhilarating. And in this case, this is what he's saying to the church. Remember those early days? You, you've left it. He doesn't say that they're without love. He doesn't say you have no love. He says you have been in the love you had at first. Their love wasn't what it used to be. It didn't possess the kind of love they had in those early years. They still loved the Lord but not like they did at first. They still loved each other, but not like they did at first. D.A. Carson wrote an article titled, A Church That Does All the Right Things, But. He says this, This church will still proclaim the truth, but no longer passionately love him who is the truth. They still perform good deeds, but no longer out of love brotherhood and compassion. They persevere the truth and they witness courageously 
but forget that love is the great witness to truth. It is not so much that their genuine virtues have squeezed love out of them, but that no amount of good works, no amount of wisdom, no amount of discernment in matters of church discipline, patient endurance and hardship, hatred of sin, or disciplined doctrine can ever make up for a lovelessness. So why is love so important? Why is the loss of love so serious? Why does it distress the heart of God so deeply? Why is it a life and death issue for the local church at Ephesus? Why is it a life or death issue for the church at Stonegate? Alexander Strauch, in his book, Love or Die, Valentine recommended this book to me. It's phenomenal. In his book, Love or Die, he makes several biblical assertions about why love is so important. First, Jesus taught the greatest commandment is to love God completely with all one's heart, soul, and mind. It's the reason we are created. Nothing in life is more right, more fulfilling, or more rewarding than loving God. If there's one prayer for this church, it would be that we would love him with everything we have. That nothing else would matter but our love for Jesus. Everything would flow from that source. Second, Jesus declared that the second commandment is also like the first. You should love your neighbor as yourself. So Christ's followers should not only be marked by total devotion to God, but also by sacrificial service to the neighbor. Well, that brings about the question, what exactly is a neighbor? Tim Keller, when recounting the parable of the Good Samaritan, refers to our neighbor in this way. He says, by depicting a Samaritan helping a Jew, Jesus could not have found a more forceful way to say that anyone at all in need, regardless of race, politics, class, and religion, is your neighbor. Not everyone is your brother or sister in the faith, but everyone is your neighbor, and you must love your neighbor. Essentially, it is impossible to love God and not have a love for his people. The neighbor, according to Jesus, includes loving our enemies, our persecutors, and the unlovely, as we see in Matthew 5. That's interesting, the unlovely. I'll never forget, that reminds me of a time when I was a little kid uh, before junior high. I contracted a disease um, that actually was pretty serious. Um, it was one that was well known, but they didn't understand how it came about uh, at the time. Um, this disease was called cooties. And essentially what this would entail is um, you cannot be in close proximity to the opposite sex or you will contract this disease. See, none of my friends could, could explain what the disease was or how it manifested itself. All we knew is touch girls and die. <laughs> and so I just remember at an early age, having that disease, but I really think to myself, um, some people in society are actually declared to be unfit. There's a story in Mark chapter one in verse 40 through 45 that Jesus tells in regards to a man who has leprosy. In order to paint a picture for you, I wanna to describe to you what John Ortberg says in regarding his research to what leprosy entailed in this uh, culture. The most common kind of leprosy began with 
a sense of lethargy and pain in the joints. Discolored patches and nodules on the left side of the face of the victim made them unrecognizable. When the sores ulcerated, the stench was intolerable. The vocal cords would also ulcerate, leaving the person's voice hoarse and raspy. Paul Brand, a doctor who has been leading research of leprosy in the 20th century, spent much of his career with lepers in India. He writes of trying to get into a padlocked gate, but the rusty lock wouldn't yield to his key. So a young leper put his finger in the lock and twisted it until the lock opened. When he pulled his finger out, Dr. Brand saw it had been gnashed to the bone, but the boy couldn't even feel it. Lepers often lose fingers and toes. People used to think this was caused by the disease. Brand and some of the researchers stayed up at night watching the lepers as they slept. Rats would come and gnaw at the lepers' extremities. But because they felt no pain, they would sleep right through it. They would wake up in the morning with part of their body gone unless someone was there to watch over them. The first sign of leprosy was regarded as a death sentence. Imagine the thought of never being able to touch your wife or children ever again. It wasn't just a physical deformity. It was regarded as being morally outrageous. They couldn't be around society at all. The law said they had to live outside of the city. And if anybody came near them, they had to put their hands up and scream and yell, unclean, unclean. And this wasn't just a first century cultural issue. This happens in caste systems like India today. And in this sense, this man approaches Jesus at the end of Mark 1. And he, he has the audacity, if you will, to ask Jesus, if you would, make me clean. What's interesting is this. Jesus certainly has the ability. This man recognizes that because he has the faith that Jesus is God and can heal him. What's even more interesting is the miracle in the story isn't that the man was healed. It's that Jesus, who was God, touched him. He didn't have to do it. Jesus is God. He could have just said the words and the man could have been healed. I'm pretty sure Jesus was present at creation when light came out of his mouth and said, let there be light. Jesus could speak and he'd be healed. Who remembers the Roman centurion? who ran up to Jesus and said, quick, my daughter, she's dying. Would you please help her? Jesus says, yes, let's go. He says, don't even worry about it. I'm over men. I understand what it means to be an authority. You just say the words, I know she'll be healed. Jesus is caught off guard. Looks at his Jewish followers and says, this soldier whose position is actually an oppression over you has more faith in who I am than you do. And in that moment, Jesus just said the words. And the centurion's daughter was healed. He doesn't have to touch the guy, but he makes a choice to do it. He places his hands on the skin or lack thereof, probably the bones of this man. Can you imagine the uproar? What Jesus is communicating right here is that the single most important distinguishing mark of a follower of Jesus is love. And that includes, that encompasses loving our enemies, our persecutors, and the unlovely. 
We see in 1 John 4, 8 that God is love. Love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. 1 Corinthians 12, Paul calls love the more excellent way. The more excellent way of living. Love is the chief virtue that should govern everything we do as a Christian. To drive this home, Paul writes the following to the church at Corinth. And I will show you a more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I'm a noisy gong. I'm a clanging cymbal over and over. If I have prophetic powers, I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith. So as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver my body to be burned up in the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Paul is saying, without love, even heavenly tongues are annoying. Without love, knowing everything theologically and philosophically helps no one. Without love, risk-taking faith is worthless. Without love, giving everything to the poor is unprofitable. Without love, even the ultimate sacrifice of one's life is pointless. Another observation regarding love that he makes is that love is not static, but dynamic. Love is to be increasing, not diminishing. This is why Paul prayed that his converts would grow in their love and overflow in their love for each other. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love. Philippians chapter 1, verse 9 through 11, it is my prayer that your love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so you can discern what is best and be left pure and blameless until the return of Christ. Jude chapter 2, excuse me, Jude verse 2, may love be multiplied to you to see continual growth in, in love delighted not only Paul's heart, but the core of God's heart. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul says, the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is famously known as the love chapter. I'm going to a wedding tonight about an hour away, and I can almost take it to the bank that that chapter will be read in some form or another. Essentially what you see is 15 principles of love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not Envious, boastful, arrogant, rude, selfish. Love is not easily angered, resentful, does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but love rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. J.I. Packer provides a beautiful summation of this love in 1 Corinthians 13, and he writes it this way. The measure and test of love to God is wholehearted and unqualified obedience. The measure and test of love to our neighbors is laying down our lives for them. A sacrificial love that involves giving, spending, and impoverishing ourselves up to the limit for their well-being. Jesus says, don't forget your first love. I'll never forget what happened to me 10 years and three months ago. February 28, 2006. My life was radically changed. My first love became Jesus. And I do remember the early days. This is why in the next few verses, Jesus gives advice to the church. He says in verse five, remember therefore from where you have fallen. 
Repent, do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. His advice is threefold. Jesus says, remember, repent, and do the works you did at first. It's interesting, he says, to remember. To help them recognize the seriousness of the condition, Jesus urges the church to remember the early days when love motivated everything they did. To remember means to recollect past feelings and actions, but not in a passive sense. It's not like you're daydreaming about the good old days, but it emphasizes a present imperative command. It's ongoing. Continual mental attitude of remembering. Talked about milestones earlier in student ministry. In many ways, Joshua 4 is a great analogy for what Jesus is telling the church to do. is to remember who God is, remember who he was in the beginning, and let that stir your heart. Joshua 4, uh, Joshua and the Israelites uh, cross uh, the Jordan River, and Jesus says, take 12 men. God says, take 12 men, one from each tribe, tell them to go back into the river where the Ark of the Covenant crossed over, pull up one stone each, and then take those stones, these are huge stones, right? Set up uh, an altar of stones. It's like, what? Okay. And then someone says, why? Like, what's the point of doing that? God says, so that your children's children's children will remember who I am and what I've done for you. So that you have something to look back upon to remember the goodness of me, the, the goodness of how it felt to cross the river and experience freedom for the first time. To experience my promise and enter into the promised land. To know that I'm a faithful God. Have moments like that where you can remember. All of us look back on those moments in our life. We remember the, the, the attitude, the joy of Jesus. He's telling Ephesus, remember that. And as you remember what you used to have and used to feel and used to exhibit, look at what you lack and repent of it. Turn from it and look to me. There's no restoring of your first love without first repenting. The Lord wouldn't allow it. The principle here and God's advice is that sin must always be dealt with. It cannot be ignored. And the final piece of advice is do the works you did at first. I'll never forget those first several months. There's actually a couple guys in the room right now who were on campus with me when it happened. And I remember I was roommates with a guy. We called him Rev. We were like, remember the Titans, like left side, strong side, right? We were roommates. He was from Miami. He's a wide receiver. I'm thankful to that guy for how he poured so faithfully into me. And we would, we would seriously lay in our bunk beds at night. This is fresh off of what God did in my heart. This is the works I did at first. In regards to my prayer life, we'd lay in bed. We were in a dorm called Ernest Bailey that is now concrete. It's been destroyed. It was a roach motel. But I remember those six hallways and those three floors, there were 111 bodies in that dorm. We knew every single one of them, and we prayed for them by name every night. I don't say that boastfully. Christ didn't come to boost my ego, but to crucify it. So now let me confess that I have not been doing that. I look back on my works at first. I look at my prayer life. I look at praying for others and how the Lord's love motivated me to love my neighbor. And it brings about conviction that must lead to repentance. So do the works I did at first. And then Jesus leaves them in the end with a warning. 
he warns the church of Ephesus and says this, do this or I remove your lampstand. Just to clarify, the church will never fail. Jesus promises us this. But he's speaking to the local church. You will cease to exist if you don't correct this. Robert Mounts puts it this way. Without love, the congregation ceases to be a church. Let that be our motivation this morning. Let the beautiful reminder to return to our first love be the best encouragement this morning. Opportunities are going to be endless for us. Opportunities will abound for us to exhibit this love for God and for neighbor. They're all around us and you'll miss it. You'll miss it if you're not ready for it. The first flight from Nicaragua before the Houston flight was a four and a half hour flight. I get to the back of the plane and find my seat is in the last row. Are you kidding me? You know, the seat that can't recline because it's against the bathroom. So you smell all of that for four and a half hours. And I'm in the window seat, crammed, this guy, with one armrest and two other people who I don't even know. And I'm sitting there sweating like I am now, sweat all over my shirt. AC doesn't even work in those planes. It's like, <laughs> Kevin Hill, one aisle over, couple rows up, making jokes for like 10 minutes just before the plane takes off. Why don't you just sit in the toilet? I mean, wouldn't let it go, right? I'm getting so agitated. I'm like, are you kidding me right now? In this moment, I'm saying all kinds of things just to keep my pride. I'm like, hey, first shall be last and the last shall be first, brother. You know? And he's just laughing like, keep telling yourself that, bro. He wouldn't, he wouldn't let it go. And he's bantering like five rows across the plane. So everyone's hearing this, right? Wherever I go, there's going to be a show, okay? And so basically, I say that comment. First should be last, last should be first. I'm like, just let it in. Just get off. Let me just try and fall asleep. This is unbelievable. Right about that time, a guy named Eric, who's a pastor in Portland, Oregon, comes walking down the aisle. Eric says, hey, Jeff. Kind of reaches back a couple rows. Someone passes it back. Take that, buddy. It's for you. I look at this. I'm like, what is this piece of paper? Kevin stands up. What is that? <laughs> what is that? And my grim demeanor turned to a glow. And in that moment, I got upgraded to row two, seat A in first class. Are you kidding me? I've never sat in first class. This is awesome. And you know what's even more awesome than first class? What I'm about to do to Kevin Hill when I get out of that aisle. He's like, what is that? What are you holding? Without even having to say what it was, the stewardess yells, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. In that moment, I get out of the aisle. As I pass Kevin, I hear not a snide remark, one of request of love from my elder, who I respect. Hey, Jeff, don't you want to serve your elder? In that moment, I had a choice to make a choice to love my elder, and so I did. I told him, I'm gonna take first class and you can learn what humility looks like. <laughs> and I sat pretty for four and a half hours. So maybe love didn't prevail in that moment. But I do pray that it prevails in each of us when we leave these walls today. 
Let it be a beautiful reminder to return to the love we had at first. A love for God who has done exceedingly abundant what we could ever imagine. The only reason we even have the ability to love him in the first place is because he first loved us. So can we take just a moment to thank him for that? Let's pray. God, you are so faithful to your people. And for that, we are a grateful church. Father, we just want to take a moment to thank you for the ultimate example of love that you displayed for us, a love of self-sacrifice, a love that put you in a position that was meant for us, a death that you didn't deserve, but one that we most rightfully did. I pray that that love would change us. Change us in a way that only we know you can do. God, I I pray that you would stir in each of us this morning a desire to, if found lacking in this area of our lives, remember the God that we know and love. Repent of that sin that is a lack of love. And help us to do the works we did at first. I pray that this church would be characterized essentially by one mark more than anything else. That we at Stonegate would love you with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. I pray that the love in your people at Stonegate would make you look really good. So Lord, just know that we're in need of that love this morning. And for those in this room that were brought by a friend who have never experienced the love that is to be found in Jesus, who is a good God, and who also tells us is the only way to that God, who is love, I pray that you would find that this morning, that you would know that love to be true, Jesus tells us to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead and we'll be saved. And so if that's you this morning, like God is giving you an opportunity to be reconciled to him. Contrary to what Carlos on that plane believes, nobody is outside the grace of God. I pray for him this morning. He's in L.A. Lord, I pray, that, I pray that you'd save him. I pray that you would do that with those who don't know you in this room. And for the rest of us, would you lead us to a much-needed repentance this morning? Thanks for loving us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.